0: Welcome to Season 2 of Oto Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is episode four, Life as a Private Practice Otolaryngologist with Dr. Craig Quattlebaum. Dr. Quattlebaum graduated from the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine then joined our residency program at the University of Colorado. Craig was a superstar resident and consistently demonstrated compassion and commitment to his patients. After graduation, he joined Mercy Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat in Edmond, Oklahoma. Craig enjoys spending time with his wife and young children.
1: Thanks for being on the show,
0: Craig. Thanks
1: so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah.
0: So let's go back to the beginning. How did you originally decide you wanted to be an otolaryngologist?
1: Well, that's a long answer, unfortunately. (laughs) So like every decision that I make, and this one wasn't easy for me at all. I I didn't actually grow up with much of a background in medicine. My dad is a girls basketball coach in Arkansas, and my mom is a human resource director. She's done that sometimes with healthcare systems, but a lot of it has been non-healthcare related as well. So my exposure as a kid to the hospital Uh, It was just her office, uh, not much up and down the halls or certainly in a patient room. And honestly, there's not a nurse, doctor, dietitian in my family or immediate social circle growing up. I was mostly exposed to medicine just by being an accident-prone kid that broke his arm a lot and being an athlete in in high school and college. And so there were sports injuries and those sorts of things. When I went to college, I started off pre-med, truthfully, mostly because I could, but I didn't really know in any real sense what I wanted to do. Uh, In the back of my mind, I kind of thought I was going to be a football coach. But at some point, I needed some extra money. And a friend of mine told me that Arkansas Children's Hospital was hiring recovery room technicians. Her mom had worked there as a nurse and knew that the job was open. So I applied. I got the job. And I really loved being there. And I think that was honestly the first time I became legitimately interested in medicine for any real reason. (laughs) A few of the doctors there would actually have been pulling back from the operating room to see a case or two. And ironically, the one case I remember seeing was an OCR with Dr. Dornhofer. And I had no clue what I was looking at. And I certainly didn't have any clue that I'd be doing those, you know, several years later. I was still probably interested in orthopedics, mostly with my athletic background and maybe pediatrics because I knew I liked working with kids. But in reality, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So in medical school, I was one of these students who kind of liked a little bit of everything. I found it all pretty interesting. I think in medical school, you get a great look at what it's like to be a student on a rotation in surgery or a student on a medicine or psychiatry rotation. But I don't think you get a great representation of what it's like to actually practice those disciplines. I don't have an answer for that problem, by the way. It's just an observation. But I was initially drawn to ENT because I like the variety of it. I think there's good variety in the patients that you see, you know, really healthy people to really sick people. There's a lot of variety in the ages of your patients, beginning of life to end and everything in between. And there's a lot of variety in the pathology as well. So you've got people who are mildly uncomfortable to people with severe disability. And then lastly, I think there's a good variety in the way that you help those people. The interventions that we do being microscopic, endoscopic, gross dissection. I just liked the ability to have a varied day from day to day. But ultimately, it came down to me making a list of what I liked and didn't like. And for me, it was very helpful to break my preferences into dichotomy. So First, I kind of realized I wanted to know a lot about a little. I wanted to specialize. I think then another branching point is realizing if you wanted to be a surgeon or not. And so I realized I like to have at least some of my time spent operating. And then ultimately, I narrowed down ENT to the kind of surgeries and pathology I like to see, as well as the lifestyle I thought the specialty afforded. So in some ways, I'd like to tell you a story like, oh, it was when I saw my first neck dissection or something like that. But in reality it was a much more measured process, I think, to narrow it down to what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that's fair. So you clearly know I'm biased in this regard, right? I'm a generalist and you're a generalist and I think that's great. But did you consider fellowship at all during your residency training?
1: Yeah, I strongly did. I, um, I thought really hard about being a rhinologist. I think a lot of that came down to the fact that I just felt a little more Natural aptitude for endoscopic surgery than some of the other approaches, and I'm sure if they're listening to this somewhere, my rhinology mentors are thinking, "Well, God, glad we didn't have to teach him thyroids or ears in that case." <laughs> uh, but I, I, I honestly like that, and I, and I like taking care of sinus disease. I think in a lot of cases you've got a chance to greatly improve somebody's quality of life. I enjoyed the challenge of skull bay cases as well, and I think the department at Colorado does a great job of supporting you in whatever you want to do, whether it's general academic practice, a general private practice. Or a fellowship in an academic career. But I do think, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, I think there's like this undertow or current that sort of pulls you towards more training when you're in training. It's just kind of the path that we've all been on for so long that it feels like there's this tug, even if it's unspoken or unseen, that kind of gently pulls you towards more training. I felt that way at least. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's something under the surface. (laughs) I'm not sure what it is.
0: I think also because you're training in mostly academic medical centers where everybody around you is you know, most people around you, not everyone, but most people around you are subspecialists. And so there's this pressure to be like them, right?
1: For sure. I think Jameson and I have even talked about that. Interestingly, you know, he felt that pull as well. And he said, in some ways, you know, I love neurotology. In some ways, I feel like there was momentum carrying me towards it, you know, and I I can totally relate to that because I felt that way about rhinology too. And you're talking about Jameson Mattingly
0: for our listeners who Mattingly. don't know. He was yeah. a co-resident in your year and you guys got pretty close. Like you get became very good friends during your training.
1: Yeah. Soulmates some would say.
0: Yeah. And he was actually on a previous <laughs> podcast about fellowship
1: selection of neurotology. Yeah. James is a good guy, but I think, I think we all to some degree feel that. And it's just like you said, it's just the comfortable environments, the familiar environment. Most people around you are subspecialists, but I think ultimately I made the right choice for me. And, and the way I came to it is I basically took a step back and asked myself like what I wanted to do for my career, for my family, for my day to day. And I don't really just mean like what surgeries do I want to do? I, I kind of took it down more basic than that. Like what are my core values for whatever job I take? And, and at the end of the day, there was a lot of overlap with my original thought of being a coach. You know, I wanted to improve the quality of life for my patients. I wanted to have a real personal impact with people beyond just the physical. I wanted to support my community and support and be with my family. And for me, I realized that I could do that in my case with or without that fellowship. And plus, I think I really enjoyed head neck cases, ears, plastics. And of course, I could still do these things after doing a rhinology fellowship, particularly if I was in the private setting. But I guess my thought was, why then would I go do a fellowship year in skull base surgery if I wasn't going to make that the majority of what I did? I know there's factor that was specific to my personal decision tree was that I really enjoy working with kids. There are certainly some pediatric exposure in rhinology, but there's not a lot. And So going back to the beginning, I knew I liked working with kids. I wanted that to be a significant portion of what I managed. And then lastly, I think a lot of it for me had to do with what my training looked like. I think I had a, a really well-rounded surgical training without a lot of glaring gaps. And I think had I been at a place where maybe I received a lesser volume and quality of endoscopic training because that was what I was drawn to, I might have been more inclined to pursue a fellowship to round that out. But I was fortunate enough to have trained in a place that could turn even me into a respectable sinus surgeon. So in the end, I realized I was okay giving up some of the more advanced anterior skull based uh, cases. And the cool thing is, I think, particularly in the right environment, you can make your practice into what you want it to be. And I've been able to build a practice that's about 40 to 50% of rhinology. I do a lot of sinus work, I do pediatrics and plastic, some ears, laryngology, and some general head and neck. You know, some of that depends a little bit on your market. So for me, there was kind of a market need for rhinology. And I think that helped build up some of that, but some of its intentionality too, and getting out there and introducing yourself to allergists and pulmonologists and letting them know that you've got a skill set that you can help those patients with. I do think there's some locations where it'd be tougher to do that, but that was one of the factors that we considered and where we eventually landed. I think for people who were struggling the way I did, the main advice that I would give them is just kind of step back and ask yourself what really makes you want to get up in the morning. And I don't mean doing your surgery or doing thyroplasty. I mean, for me, it was the relationship with patients. It was satisfaction and pride in my job and knowing I'm making a difference. I think if those are your answers to you, can probably find happiness in whatever you decide and for someone else. It might be a national presence or leading a charge and, you know, researching new treatments or ideas or maybe teaching. So I think to know the specialty or whether you want to land as a generalist or a subspecialist, the most important thing first is that you understand yourself and what it is that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, well said. So I think you really alluded to what you like best about being a generalist, but what do you like the least about being a
1: generalist? I think one of the hardest things, I'd be interested to get your take on this. I think one of the hardest things for me is striking the balance between caring for the patient in front of me with the skill set I have versus knowing when to pull that trigger for a subspecialty referral. And I think it's different, obviously, sometimes in the places you are. In some ways, I would think this may be even harder for you because you're just next door to a subspecialist and everything. But for me, like a good example from my practice is surgery. You know, I told you that the rhinology presence was sort of smaller where I landed, but there's a fairly strong otology or ear surgery presence in my community. And so I graduated feeling very comfortable performing a stapedectomy. I was excited to get out and do them. It's one of those surgeries, I think, where the general concepts are fairly straightforward. But those nuances, and I do think those nuances make a big difference in patient outcomes, I think those are a lot more subtle. And plus, while the poor outcomes are very rare, they're also very bad. So my plan was, let me get out. I will see and take an inventory of how many do I do in the first year and assess whether or not that volume is high enough to justify keeping that part of my regular practice. And then 13 months later, I saw my first candidate (laughs) for a stapedectomy. And I said to myself, Ah, oh, it looks like at least in this market with the referral patterns being what they are, that it's going to be hard for me to justify doing three of these a year when someone's doing three a week down the street. And so, yeah, I think when you do a little bit of everything, there's always someone who's more specialized and therefore theoretically more experienced for some of those complex cases. And I find as someone who I think tries to pay attention to my weaknesses too, so that I'm giving the patient the best experience they have, I find that balance a little bit challenging at times.
0: Yeah, it is tricky too in my practice setting because you're right. I have subspecialists, multiple subspecialists in my practice that all would love to take over all of this type of surgery. And so my practice has changed over the years about what I do. But I think, you know, with all these studies that are out about patient outcomes, depending on how many cases you do per year. I think in some ways it's irresponsible if you're not doing them frequently. So I think that's really smart to kind of keep an eye on that and and keep track.
1: Yeah, I think it kind of falls to us to sort self-police those things. And and the general rule of thumb, as corny as it sounds, is like, if this was my brother sitting across from me, would I do this surgery or do I legitimately think there's someone who might have a significantly better chance at a better outcome? And, And that's usually the barometer that I use. Yeah, I think I, another thing about... Oh, sorry. I mean to cut you off. No, you're good. The other thing about things I don't like about general, and this may be a regional specific thing or a specialist thing to some degree in general, but I felt like, especially early on, I saw a ton of primary care. And the only reason I bring this up is because I think it's two important points for people who are starting a practice. I do think, first of all, that there's a value that you provide as a specialist who can weigh in on something and give a patient a peace of mind. And that's probably a value that the primary care can not always provide. So I'm not downplaying the importance of that role. But there also is a lot of primary care physicians who are honestly just kind of stretched thin and it's easier for them to defer the workup and management of certain things to you. To a degree, I think that's fine. But I do think it's important to build relationships with these referring providers by understanding that and then being able and willing to help with anything. And then I also think it's really important to just keep those lines of communication open up and the relationships with those referring providers open so that you can educate and empower them over time to tackle for themselves what's appropriate and to refer what's also appropriate. You know, it's, it's important to remind yourself, like, they're wanting to take good care of this patient just like you do. And I think we have an important role that we shouldn't forget in just partnering with them and helping to make sure that's streamlined for the patient the best way that we can. 'Cause when you're new in practice you think, Well goodness, why why wouldn't they know to send me this or that? Well, probably because no one's told them. And so I think it's really important to be openly communicating with them. I'm stunned how often someone sends me like a communication back and says, Oh my goodness, thank you for sharing with me, you know, your thoughts on this. Usually I don't hear anything and I'm like, never hear anything. So I, I think that's more common than you might think. And I think it's really important to make sure that they feel like they can reach out to you and ask questions and that you're gonna you know, graciously explain things if they hadn't seen it before.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to build your practice in general, right? So being approachable yeah. and making sure that they understand that you're not belittling them when they send you a patient. Yeah. A non-epistaxis epistaxis consult is fine. <laughs> it's it does, easier yeah. in some ways. And if you are kind of the patient and kind of the referring doc, you're going to get
1: better stuff later. Absolutely. And these, you know, it's a good reminder to yourself when I'm, anytime I'm starting to feel a little frustrated at something, I ask, well, what would I do if someone sent me like a broken hand or something? Yeah, <laughs> and I realize how completely inept I would be in taking care of those things. And it's a good reminder that like, you know, I chose a specialty for a reason. I like to know a lot about a little, but these guys are out there managing several different organ systems at once. And for the most part, they're happy to have you help them direct them. Oh, you, you'd rather me do this or get this CT scan before? Cool. Happy to do that. It just takes some communication with them. So. That's, I think, eases out from frustrations for a lot of people. Maybe most importantly, though, for the patient, just so they can get taken care of as expeditiously as possible.
0: Yeah, I frequently tell patients that, like, if I disagree with their primary care's diagnosis, I say something like, you know, I think it's this, but I've seen, you know, a lot of this. Don't ask me to manage your knee pain. I would be terrible at that, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that usually comes across, I think, uh, for the patients. So when you decided that you were going to be a generalist, how did you decide where to look for jobs and what timeframe was
1: that during your residency? So we started seriously looking, I think my PGY four year, I had a couple informal contacts before that time, just from hospital recruiters that happened to know my family or whatever and realize what I was doing. But I actually started sort of getting in the weeds of it, my PGY four year. I think some of that was just spurred on by the fact that I had to, finally make a decision about whether I was going to do a fellowship or not. And so I needed to sort of look at the other side of that coin and have some things to compare it to. I know people who signed contracts as early as PGY3 in certain circumstances, but I think that fourth year is a pretty common time to start looking around.
0: And then how did you find, so you said you had some recruiters Hmm. call you, you found some open positions that way. Did you hire a recruiter to help you or? So not
1: directly. I actually went to something called um, Practice Link, which is a website. And there are several different places like this, but they're basically places where recruiters from all over the country can create profiles and post job offerings and things like that. So you can create a profile on that. Tara and I knew that we were kind of targeting Oklahoma City and Arkansas. This is where our families are from. And so we sort of honed in on that location, created a Practice Link profile and looked for any postings. And then I also honestly just Googled (laughs) different ENT practices within the city. So when we started looking hard at Oklahoma City, I basically emailed the practice manager for all the private groups in town, and then just started those communications up like that. I had a few one-off relationships with people and were able to talk to a few of the private guys in town on the phone. And then as we went through that process, we had an opportunity to present itself in Denver, which complicated things even more because you know we had always pictured living closer to our family. But after spending five years in Denver, it's really hard to not take that very seriously. And so that complicated the decision somewhat. But ultimately, we use that practice link portal for a lot of the contacts that we made. And then just honestly, especially from a private standpoint, I think the practice link is how I got in touch with most hospital systems for these more employed positions. But just emailing individual practice managers is how I got in touch with private practice groups.
0: So were most of them advertising or most of them said, oh, yeah, we actually have an opportunity for you when you cold call?
1: Yeah. So when I cold called just the little private groups, for the most part, it was like, oh, okay, are are, are you interested in coming here? Sure, we can set something up. I didn't find any private groups, at least where I was looking, that were advertising per se. The hospital systems on the other hand were, at least in Oklahoma City where we looked, there were three different hospital systems that had postings for employed positions. I don't know how, to be honest with you, because our search was a little more narrow, I don't know how common or frequent it is to find a posting for a private practice group. is particularly a smaller one. I imagine some of the larger multi-specialty groups would post those things more frequently. But in Oklahoma City, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. There is one large single specialty group that has roughly eight to 10 ENT providers. And then for the rest, you know, maybe one or two practitioners together under a tax ID but there aren't a lot of large multi groups that involve ENTs, at least in this community.
0: Yeah, I think that really varies by community too.
1: Really does, I think, yeah.
0: So how many interviews did you end up
1: doing for jobs? I think, I think all in all, I did three of these individual practice, excuse me, private practice groups. I did one with an academic institution. I did two formal interviews with hospital systems. I also had like a phone interview with another hospital system, and we just realized it wasn't quite a fit, so that didn't turn into something formal. And a lot of these were sort of piggybacked, like, you know, I was living in Denver, so I would fly in maybe for hospital system interview. And while I was there, I would meet with a couple of the private groups in town um, and knock them out like that.
0: Yeah, because if the hospital's advertising, they are more likely to pay to recruit you, whereas the private practice jobs don't have that kind of money to do that.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah. So how did you decide which job to take?
1: Well, just through excruciating deliberation for my <laughs> mutual <laughs> protocol. Your pros and cons uh, list. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going on. You know, location proved to be a big part of it for us. And ironically, for most people listening, that did land us in Oklahoma City rather than Denver. Um, <laughs> we, we, you know, ultimately, Tara and I both grew up close to our family. We had grandparents kind of involved in our day-to-day life. We just wanted that experience for our kids. So once we decided to live in Oklahoma City, there were a ton of factors. I think one of the big questions for me looking at both an employed type of position in a healthcare system versus a more traditional private practice route was trying to sort that out. And there's a ton of nuances in that decision. I ultimately went on the side of being an employed physician. So I think my experience in that is somewhat unique. On the bright side of hospital employment is the fact that someone else is kind of taking on all the risk of your startup from a financial standpoint. You know, you have to think about the cost of office space and equipment, and staffing, and billing and coding and coming out of residency, you're going to have to borrow money to make any of that happen. And meanwhile, those student loans can't be deferred anymore. That's just the clinic side. You know, on the operating room side, you know, you have to think about, do you do any procedures that maybe aren't widely representative in the market that you're going to? So uh, maybe it's a new novel procedure for that hospital. My hospital, for instance, they needed a navigation system they needed frontal sinus instrumentation that they didn't have. For someone else, it might be an AccuBlade laser or a particular microscope, whatever. That kind of capital, that's a big expense for a hospital. And so i just paused to say that no matter what your arrangement is, I think it's critical that you make sure that you've had these discussions prior to signing. Maybe it was just naive of me, but you know, coming out, I just assumed everybody had the equipment I was used to using. And that's just not the case. Yeah. I think in some ways, as an employed physician, it's an easier pill for my hospital to swallow to buy, you know, a S8 navigation system, knowing that I'm going to do all my sinus surgery at their hospital. I'm not saying that a hospital wouldn't be willing to buy it for me if I was a private practice guy, but if I have the option of taking my surgeries to a surgery center too, I do think that's a harder sell for that system. So I think I found that to be a under the radar advantage. I think I had less trouble getting some of the equipment than some of my colleagues do out in the community. And then when you got your equipment, you have to think about sort of building your practice. And I just mean, I don't mean the walls and the lights, but the referral patterns that keep things moving. And that takes time. You don't show up with the full schedule that we're used to seeing you guys do when we're residents. And so you have to make relationships with referring providers, show that you care and you're capable. And I think it's really nice. At least I felt like that was a positive thing to have a safety net in place during that ramp up time. I know there's a lot of factors that go into that. Some of it is your personality. How good are you at shaking hands and kissing babies and that sort of a thing? And some of it is just things outside your control, your environment, how saturated is your market? And it takes some time to build those things up. So I liked that my model had a guaranteed salary during that period. And then it eventually transitioned to a production-based model for compensation and a lot of times I saw different versions of this, you know, these guaranteed periods can be simple dollars for RVU, or multi-tiered salary level based compensation that's based on some RVU cutoff once you finally get on production. But the guaranteed period I think is really nice, particularly if you're in a more competitive market. It just kind of helps you budget and plan for your family while you get the practice stuff figured out. And I honestly, I like the support of a system that's used to doing all the quote practice stuff for me while I'm getting my feet under me because I certainly didn't come out with a lot of business acumen. I didn't know what a reasonable overhead was or how much staff I needed. And I think in some ways it's nice to figure that stuff out while someone else's skin is in the game, so to speak. Now, three years later, I feel like I've had a learn a chance to learn a lot of that. So if I were to ever want to strike out on my own, I feel like I'd be a lot more capable and a much better position to do so than I would have been as a fresh graduate, learning the medicine and the business side sort of simultaneously. And plus, I mean, nobody likes to talk, we're a profession that we're not supposed to talk about finances, but as the private practice guy, it's probably my job, right? (laughs) That's supposed to fall to me. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, you know, I realized if I'm going to do this on my own, I'd be in a much better financial position to make that happen than coming straight out of a residency, adding more loans to my loans. I like the idea of getting my financial house in order before striking out to do that. But there's downsides too. I mean, I think the major downside to working for a hospital system is that you work for a hospital system directly. So at the end of the day, the decisions on your schedule and staffing, supplies, equipment, etc., in theory, could be out of your hands. So I do think it's important to say that if you're considering an employee position, it is good to take a hard look at the culture of that place as best you can. Is this a physician-led culture? Is this a place that listens to your opinion? And the only place you can get that is from people who are kind of already in that position. So for me, fortunately, I kind of read the vibe correctly, I think, at my job. And I essentially have latitude to control all those aspects of my practice. You know, I set the schedule. I have ultimate say in staffing, although there are certain corporate hoops you have to jump through. I'm sure you experienced those at Colorado too. But it's all give and take. You know, I can't speak as directly to the more traditional practice path at this point. But it's just so much more varied. I mean, when it comes down to sizes of practices and the way that they formulate their contracts, you can find everything, multi-specialty groups, one to two providers, single specialty groups, everything in between. And while the hospital contracts, I think, are fairly standard, the contracts on the private side can be very complex. I'd truthfully go through either with a fine-tooth comb, by the way. But I know some people who walked into fairly pre-made positions with you know, shared office space, some form of income guaranteed. So it's not like that is a feature that is only available to you if you work for a hospital. There are certain private practice that can do that, but obviously that's coming out of the pockets of those providers. So um, I think it's a little harder for a smaller group to create something like that. But I do know colleagues who are in that sort of a position. And then there's often some form of buy-in down the line where you become a partner. But I'm probably not the best person to speak to a lot of those things. I got the general highlights, you know, during the contract negotiation periods. And then ultimately I decided that Employed position was a, the right first step for me. And I've been very happy with it, honestly. It's worked out really well so far.
0: Nice. So what has been the most surprising thing to you since you started your practice?
1: How much I miss the camaraderie of residency, as corny as that sounds. I'm not just saying that for you. That's real. I, and I miss teaching too. Residency is hard, but I do think it's important to remind people not to take it for granted because I miss grand rounds, as silly as that sounds you know what I mean? Just a time to get together and bounce ideas off of people and learn from people that are smarter than you and and these sorts of things. It's just a nice thing. So I'm surprised at how much I miss just the community of people who are going through the same thing you are, doing the same thing you are, um, who have that insight too. So I went for a period of time with no partner and that was hard for this extrovert. So (laughs) I, I finally have a great, great partner now and I actually have a PA that works with me and that's made a big difference, but even that is, is still different than what, what you have during residency. The other thing that surprises me is, I probably knew this, but didn't recognize it to its fullest, is that your attendings are really good at, for tracking. And it's like <laughs> it's it like a check to your ego when you realize that like a lot of your perceived smoothness that you were feeling as a chief resident was really just propped up by having an excellent co-surgeon. And when you're out on your own and your assistant is like Becky, who's like an OB scrub, You realize like how much attention (laughs) now you're watching what you're doing. You're watching what Becky's doing, making sure she's paying attention. And it's just, it just takes some getting used to. So it's a different skill, you know, and I do think it's interesting to think about the residency experience and how often you get to work with a junior resident in a case. And I do think those experiences are valuable to walk someone else through it as well, as opposed to you just always learning to do that procedure and sort of perfecting it and that sort of thing. But yeah, you kind of realize, boy, they were helping me out a lot. (laughs) This is harder on your own. (laughs) They were paving the path for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy (laughs) when when someone better than you is showing you where to cut. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty funny.
0: So if you had to do it over, would you choose the same job? Would you choose the same generalist practice? Absolutely. And you have a couple of kids.
1: How old are they now? So um, I have a new one since yeah. we've last talked, probably. I have um, a seven-year-old boy named Gray. I have a just-turned-five-year-old named West. And I have a little girl named Etta, who's about 18 months.
0: Yeah, so you're busy.
1: Uh, Very busy. My yeah. wife's more busy, but yes.
0: Well, yeah. You know, now yeah. we're,
1: home, we're homeschooling with this COVID thing now, so.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, we are too. So if one of them came to you probably 20 years from now is about right, and said, Dad, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would be your response?
1: If that's what they feel called to, then absolutely. I mean, I think we all know that there's a lot of headache and heartache that comes with what we do. And we know that if it's a good income you're looking for, there are probably easier paths with more value for the time that we put in. But for me, I can't believe how blessed I've been to been led down this path. I get to do a job every day that's enjoyable, challenging, intellectually stimulating, and I get to connect with people during their most personal and vulnerable times just because I know how to operate on their neck or sinuses. And that's pretty special. I think it provides more for my family than we could ever need. It gives us the opportunity to give back to our community in a tangible way. And I get to come home at night knowing I made a positive impact for someone else. And You know, how many people get to say that? Dr. Song used to always say that matching an EMT, we've won the lottery in quotes. I really do think he's right. But that being said, my kids are pretty set on being zookeepers. So I think it's going to be a tough sell. <laughs> yeah. But who knows. Well, Maybe they're still in cool.
0: that stage, so you know, yeah. yeah. Give, give it give they, it a they, couple of years. <laughs> I have
1: not strayed from the zookeeper dream, so we'll see.
0: That's great. Yeah. My son <laughs> yeah. wants to be a lawn care person. That's what Does he? That's what he wants nice. to be. Yeah, because he's really into No, but he's super into like the ride on tractor. I think that is uh, the draw.
1: Put a weed in his hands. He'll change his mind or get him a (laughs) non-self-propelled mower. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody have fun. It's hundred degrees outside. Of course you don't, you know, in Colorado, it's going to be more enjoyable. If you, if you need some help, like again, that's a great profession. If he wants to do that. But if you're, if you're really wanting to find out if he's into it or not, just send him down here to mow my lawn in August. That sounds good. Then we'll we'll know. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. All
0: right. Great. Anything else you want to add?
1: I don't think so. I feel like I talked a ton.
0: Yeah, but it was all very valuable.
1: Eh, We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a blast.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Until next time, wishing you success and joy.